0: Do not fall asleep on me this sermon i just joked earlier like there's sermons that pastors get geeked up about this is one of them okay you're cold somebody give janet a hug <laughs> um, so i'm excited about it. i want you to go ahead and get uh, get ready for it if you don't have a, a notebook and you want to start taking notes you can put it in your bulletin it's fine Um, but we are doing first impressions. First impressions means we're introducing the stories of Jesus. The title of the book is on the cover. In other words, when we look at the early stories of Jesus, we get an idea of what the rest of the book is going to talk about. Okay? Yes, you don't judge a book by its cover, but there is something to the cover. It's telling you something. It's saying something that we want to know more about. The early stories in Jesus tell us more about what we want to know about him. (laughs) So uh, let's go quick review. All right, go ahead. First impressions of Jesus are the earliest stories about him. We learned at the Christmas story, the nativity, Jesus' birth. And then last week I talked about the boy Jesus at the temple where Jesus stayed behind. His parents were going back to Galilee, and he was at the temple. Three days to search for him. They finally found him in the temple, and he said, why would you think I, I, I would be in my father's house? And it's that early story that's telling us Jesus is going to make a transition as he grows in wisdom and in stature and in favor. He's going to make a transition from, I'm going to be fully man, but I'm going to come into my own as fully God, and that part of Savior that we celebrate, okay? So, That was last week. We're going to talk today about Jesus' baptism. Uh, Next Sunday, Breck will be coming to talk about the temptation of Jesus. And then the last Sunday in uh, February will be the calling of the disciples. March and April, we're going to keep moving along through Jesus' life. So if you've never really sort of followed some chronology of the life of Jesus, join us the next few months. We're going to do just that. Okay. So, today, Jesus' baptism, the beginning of never the same... When Jesus was baptized, he began his public ministry. He leaves the life of a carpenter, of this quiet existence, and he enters into this ministry to be a teacher, a sage, and ultimately our Savior. Now, every one of us probably knows moments like that, right? That's why I put these images up there. There are things in your life where you did something and you transitioned into something never to go back again. Why don't you take a minute and and just share a story with somebody next to you. What was a life-changing moment that transitioned you to never be the same again? Go ahead, take a few minutes and share some of those. If you're watching uh, Facebook Live or on the podcast, recall some of those for yourself. What was an event in your life that afterwards you were never the same again? All right, what would you guys, anybody say anything? Children, you can never put them back. Yep, they're there. They're humming in full force. And unlike sea turtles, it takes about 26 years to raise them parents. Is that the new rule? It's like forever. Uh, what else? What else did we say? Marriage. marriage, why'd you say that sort? marriage? <laughs> marriage. And it changed everything. It's true. Even where uh, marriages uh, end sadly, uh, it's still never the same. You, you are never the same from before being married. It changes you. Correct. What else? Anybody have that great diploma? right? The college graduation, never the same again. 18 might be, maybe it was an age, you you were never the same again. My kids get their driver's license, we were never the same again, right? All of a sudden they're out there into the world when you take your kid to kindergarten and they start school. It changes things. It always changes things. Well, here's the thing I'm offering. What I'm going to offer this morning is baptism and the story of Jesus' baptism is also this never the same again. But I'm going to put a twist on it this morning. And the twist, I think, is going to remind us, what baptism ultimately represents. Because a lot of us may go into a baptism and you've been baptized and you think of where you were before and where you want to be afterwards and you're hoping that this baptism will signify a new you. Somebody totally different. You know, you're no longer the caterpillar. You're a butterfly. And anybody who sees you will never look back and say, huh, you look familiar. Were you that caterpillar No, I'm in a totally different place. I'm hanging out with butterflies. I'm not grounded with these other miserable caterpillars. It's somebody totally different. But think about it. If we went that route, then we would say, if I gave you a diploma, now you're really smart. Does that work? Can I just give you a diploma and you be really smart? No. The diploma is revealing your work ethic and your study and your growing intelligence that you've now acquired a diploma. The same thing's true about a wedding ring. I always joke when I teach the baptism class, if I take the ring off, "Ah, I'm no longer married. Quick, put the ring back on. It's okay, honey, we're still married. It doesn't work that way. If you take the ring off, it's a symbol of your marriage. It doesn't make you married. And that's the truth at a wedding. I can't guarantee when two people make those vows and we exchange rings and they put them on one another, I can't guarantee that they have fully bonded in their heart. But that's what's supposed to have already happened. We're making a public confession of their love for one another. And the rings are symbolic of that. But the ring didn't make them this wholly new entity of marriage. They had already been that, and they were revealing it. I especially love this trophy. How many of you saw the Super Bowl last week? Now, I didn't have really a a horse in the race, uh, but we lived in Kansas City, so I thought, well, all right, let's, let's," well, Kansas City, Kansas, by the way. The Chiefs are in Missouri. Anyway, so so when Andy Reid held up this trophy, the Lombardi Trophy, uh, most of you probably looked at it, and you can still appreciate, even if you're not a Chiefs fan, Andy Reid was uh, the Eagles coach. I didn't like him for 20 years because he played against the Cowboys. But he didn't win. He, won, you know, he went to four NFC uh, championships, got into the Super Bowl, once to the Eagles, they lost. And now he comes back some years later. He's a Hall of Fame coach, and most of you can probably recognize Andy Reid, or you'd recognize Pat Mahomes. Everybody knows somebody that was a key component of that team. You saw him on the stage, you look at it, you go, oh my gosh. But that trophy didn't make Andy Reid a great coach, did it? The, The trophy represents what he believed in himself all along. Now catch this. Some of us really don't like ourselves, and we want to take our life And transition it into somebody totally different. And we say things like, Jesus will make you new. Now that's true, but it's supposed to be more a renewed. Jesus will make you restored. And trust me, nobody has a harder life than Dylan McAuliffe. This next picture is probably somebody you would never recognize. He's the one in the hat. And those are his four children with him. He also won the Super Bowl. He also had the greatest transformation you could ever imagine. But it wasn't because he got to hold up the Lombardi Trophy. It's because of the whole story. See, when Dylan was born, his mom, uh, his birth mother, was 16 at the time in Youngstown, Ohio. And when he was born... Uh, well, actually, when she became pregnant, and this is a whole story that's out there now, so don't cheat on me. Don't get ahead of me. But uh, the story is basically his birth mother uh, kept it quiet. She didn't tell anybody she was pregnant, not even the father. She had a fling with the guy in high school that he got a college scholarship, and he went off to college, and she never even told him. So she's pregnant. She's pregnant. She tries to keep it to herself. Only a few people know when uh, it's time to have the baby, she goes down to uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, has the baby, few family members with her. She gives the baby up for adoption. Now, she actually named Deland, I believe it was John, oh, I'm going to move a little bit, but it wasn't the same name. So his his last name, it was totally different than what we know of Deland now. And and that was the name that she had. But it was a private adoption. So when a uh, a couple came and adopted him, they changed his name. So his original name is gone. He's now given this new name. And he's raised by this couple that gets divorced. His life goes out of control. Um, The father leaves. The mother tries to raise his older brother and him. She has multiple jobs. Uh, The story explains how she got into multiple relationships, men in and out of the house who were abusive. Um, Their life was turmoil. It was lived in poverty. It was lived in a house that was never secure, that always felt threatened. So by the time he got to high school, he found an outlet, a passion for football. So he totally dove in to playing football. In fact, he was really good at it. When he graduated high school, colleges wanted him. A Youngstown coach, Jim Trestle, somebody I was fond of in the early 2000s because he ended up coaching at the Ohio State University. He wanted to recruit him. Other people wanted to recruit him. Bob Stoops wanted to recruit him. But this guy, Sherman Smith, from the University of Miami, Ohio, he recruited him. And Dylan went to the University of Miami of Ohio. He looked up to this man. Sherman Smith would say, I treated these men as if they were sons. We were family. And true to point, he was a father figure. In fact, he was such a father figure for dylan that Sherman uh, eventually accepted a position to be the running backs coach at uh, Tennessee Titans, and then he later went to be with the Seattle Seahawks. So he made it to the NFL, but he never forgot Dylan They stayed close. dylan graduated college. Uh, he had knee issues, so he couldn't play in the NFL. So he ended up getting into coaching, and through the coaching, um, he found himself to be back where his mentor and his own water, he was the running backs coach at the University of Miami in Ohio. Pretty cool, kind of comes full circle. And this relationship with Sherman Smith, this mentoring is what really helped drive him even beyond some of those startings in the harshness of his early years. Dillon looked up to him. Sherman had played eight years in the NFL, was the father figure that Dylan never had. He was a positive role model. This lasting relationship eventually allowed Deland to leave the University of Miami, Ohio. He went and was a rush, uh, running backs coach at Indiana University, and then eventually ended up at Kansas City. And that's the man in the hat. Delan McAuliffe has the heart of a champion. He is someone who is able to overcome the harshness of his childhood, to finish college, to pursue coaching, to build the right relationships with the right people like a Sherman Smith. People who would help him get to places because they believed in him. That's the person he was. And when he got that trophy, the trophy didn't say he was a champion. It just told the world what he already knew. That's the baptism of Jesus. If you go to Matthew chapter 3, this short piece of Scripture tells us the story of Jesus' baptism. Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. So now he's coming in to where he's going to enter into ministry. Some people always ask, they'll say, well, why did Jesus get baptized? Because often we only think of baptism as this forgiveness of sins. Now I'm going to get into that. But there's something so much more about what baptism does, what it represents. So even John questioned that. He, he asked and said, "I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, and yet you're coming to me. Why is this so?" But Jesus said, "It should be done." For me, carry out all that God requires. It's an important element to baptism, what it requires of us. This should be done. So John agreed to baptize him. And Scripture goes on. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Now remember in uh, the Old Testament, the dove represented peace, right? I will not have, offer calamity to the world. I'm gonna bring peace to the world. So uh, we think of that as the Holy Spirit coming onto Jesus to bring peace to the world. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. Okay, little background of baptisms. We have a baptismal, and some of you know how that works. If you're raised Lutheran or Catholic or Methodist, you know that there's the sprinkling. You know it could be a baby. Um, Churches all over the place do it differently, but it actually has Jewish roots. So there's this this thing called a mitzvah, and it would be just like our baptismal tank. And what you would do is you would come to that mitzvah, And you would have a ceremonial cleansing. So the Jews would believe in this, especially anything that offered death. They felt like if you had any interaction with death, you should then have this mitzvah, this bath, and come out of it and be ceremonially clean. In fact, I'll give you a couple of things they really did this for. Women did this after their menstrual period, after their menstrual cycle, um, because what? They weren't pregnant. And if the purpose in our creation, humanity, is to procreate, then they would come out of that as a, that old, what I didn't have happen, something now. And men, they would do it after sex because the woman wasn't pregnant. The procreation didn't happen. So there's this, this consideration of what should have been and didn't happen. And they come out of it, and now it's a new opportunity. If they touched a corpse, most of us would be like, ah, it's for the funeral director. They didn't really have funeral directors back then. And then a higher death rate. So people would, so in other words, it represented a, I have to let this experience in death be cleansed so that I can have the restoration of my purpose in life. And doesn't that make more sense about Jesus? This, I know that I'm fully human, as Jesus would think. And as a result of being fully human, I am eventually going to die. I'm going to have to surrender to that death so that I can come out and offer new life. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? You know, early Christians would do different forms of baptism. One method of an early Christian baptism is to do it naked. And it might shock some of us, but they would go down to a river, they'd go down to a place. By the way, the Jordan River is really telling, too. Uh, The mitzvah would have to have a spring. It would have to have something flowing through it. It couldn't be stagnated water, right? So John the Baptist was a bit of a rebellious person because he's kind of like, I'm not going to make it a ceremonially, you know, blessed mitzvah where the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees all make rules for how you're supposed to do it. We're going to go right down to the Jordan. Do you believe in the forgiveness of sins? Do you want death to be gone and life to be made new? And everybody just came flocking. They're like, oh my gosh. Well, the Pharisees and the leaders, they were mad about this. They're like, whoa, 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 you're kind of breaking things, you know, the rules. It's supposed to be this mitzvah, thing that we've created, and we have rules and expectations of what you're supposed to do. And it's as if Jordan says, This is the mitzvah of God, right? This is God's holy space. You just come down, be forgiven, be new. Well, early Christians wanted to recognize that in the sense that they took off all of that guilt. Like to be baptized naked was to say, I'm not wearing the humanity that I have tried to put on my whole life. Think about that from your perspective. How many of you have things that have been weighing on you? Things that you've said, things that you've done, the guilt. You know, you can't put baptism on like a new cover and hope that nobody else sees anything else, and now you never have to deal with the past again. It's actually the opposite is true. You have to reveal all of those layers. You have to take those away and allow Jesus to restore you to the child of God. The more layers you add, the more you realize you no longer remember who you are. Baptism can't be another layer. It is a returning to who you are meant to be. The forgiveness of sins. It's not simply because we can put our sins behind us. It's because God is saying those sins are of human earthly descent. They're things that you've been wearing. And I never intended for you to wear them. I know who you are. I know exactly who you are. And I want you to celebrate who you are as a child of God. So just because you can put on another role, another hat, another responsibility, think, why is it making it harder? Some of you might have even come to church and you thought, I'll put on a church hat and that will make things better. But you never really surrendered to the simplicity of a child of God. That's the thing about Dylan McAuliffe. This is a picture of him and his mentor, Sherman Smith. Pretty cool, huh? The running backs coach of the Seattle Seahawks and the running backs coach, the Kansas City Chiefs. A mentor, a father figure, a son. See, I told you that he was more than a champion, not simply because he got a trophy. But even though Dylan had accomplished so much, there was one question. Now, we live in a world today that we have more information available to us. My parents adopted my sister. It was a one-sided adoption. They knew who the birth parents were, but the birth parents did not know who they were. In D-land's, uh situation, nobody knew. Because of how the adoption went, uh, even Dylan's birth mother didn't know who he was, and Dylan had no idea who his birth parents were. The thing was, uh, Dylan uh, later in life had those four kids I showed you, and they had some medical questions, and the challenge that Dylan's wife was having is that they couldn't answer the questions from his perspective. They didn't know any of his history, they had no idea, no medical records, nothing came of it. So Dylan decided to start pursuing where he was from. And because his name had changed, he didn't know who his birth mother was, so he had to go back and figure it out. And after a long time of finding out where he was born, what hospital it might have been in, what age, time, all of that, he finds out that there's this lady. And so he... Connects with her on Facebook and she ignores him at first. She's like, I don't know who this person is. But she remembers having given up a child for adoption, but at the same time that this young man is talking about it. And so finally, she relents and she says, Okay, yes. And they figure it out and they they get to the birth certificate and she's the birth mom. And he says, Because the father's name's not on it. Nobody knows who the father is except for the birth mom. So Dylan learned from Carol who'd never told anyone who the biological father was of this child. It was a young man, she said, who went off to play football at the University of Miami of Ohio. He went there on a scholarship, and he had no idea I was pregnant. And Dylan said, what is his name? You cannot make this stuff up. Carol said, his name is Sherman Smith. The man that recruited him, the strangers that became friends and mentor, never knew, had no idea to look at them, one is the biological father and the other biological son. Now trust me, in many different phases of life, we have relationships that we grow into, that we strive towards. This was one that Sherman had to take in. He had no idea what to say, what to do. But after a while, they did the DNA, and sure enough, Dylan's biological father was Sherman Smith, his mentor since college. You know, everyone here has adoptive parents. My parents would tell me too. Even as my sister was adopted, and we had this blend of differences in our whole scenarios, I'll stick with this as Paul talks about it all the time. Every parent here is an adoptive parent. Do you know why? Because where do we want to return our children? You're not Jesus, you can't be God. You have an earthly responsibility to raise your children in the way of the Lord, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. And who do we want them to return to? Jesus' baptism wasn't because he was becoming something different. It was telling everybody, I am the Father's Son. Every one of us, when we get baptized, we can say, I have great parents, I had difficult parents, I have a rough life, I have a bad life. You come out of the waters, you say, I am a child of God. This is where I was started. As soon as I was conceived, I was brought into this world, and maybe somebody else helped with that. But it was with a divine creator who brought me in. And we as parents, the responsibility we have to remind them, ultimately we go to the Father. Baptism doesn't enter God into our lives, it returns us to God, the one who has been there the whole time. You can be an athlete, you can be a graduate, you can be a spouse, you can be a carpenter, you can be a nurse, you can be a teacher, you can be a farmer, it doesn't matter. Any of those roles that you play, they can keep building up and you can put more of them on top of the other. But underneath it all, where you started, where everything began... This is my son, my daughter, with whom I am well pleased. I created you with purpose. Come back to me. Acknowledge me. Your baptism doesn't make you someone else. It explains exactly who you are. So if you're here this morning and you keep layering onto your life new roles, you put on that church hat and said, this is going to be me now. I want to invite you into a space in worship to get rid of all that. A spiritual nakedness before God. God, I don't have to be the best pastor. God, I'm going to make mistakes as a husband. God, I've done things and I have been a train wreck in so many places in my life. But I want to take all of that off. And I just want to be child of God. That is such a great place to be. And it comes with the forgiveness of sins. But trust me, it doesn't make you somebody you are never going to be, and now you are. It makes you the purest form of who God intended all along.